those of you that have your Bibles, let's mark these places. Are you ready? Daniel chapter 7. John chapter 1. And for kicks, we'll also mark 1 John chapter 3. So you don't feel obligated to mark those pages if you just want to listen. I'll be reading from those spots so you don't have to uh, mark them unless you really want to. That's Daniel chapter 7, John chapter 1, and 1 John chapter 3. Let's pray and we'll see what... uh, Oh, I didn't even tell you the main passage to mark is Matthew 25. I missed that. That's the main passage that we marked. Matthew 25. See what happens when you go on vacation? You get soft. Matthew 25. Let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, here we are. Like Mary, Lord, just sitting at your feet. Not uh, Martha's this morning, distracted by, uh, by much service. But Lord, just sitting here at your feet giving you all of our attention this morning. Lord, whatever thoughts we have about whatever's going to happen later in the day, what things we have planned, what, what things are coming up, what the week holds, Lord, I pray that you would just, for this next 45 minutes, would just blot those things out of our minds, Lord. Help us for this time to be focused on you, to give you our attention, to open our hearts to you, Lord, we, we want to hear, we want to know in, this, in these last days, in these crazy, crazy times, we desperately need to hear your voice to keep us anchored in a world that is, is steadily devolving. Father, hold us in the palm of your hand and whisper your truth into our ears day after day, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful God is not limited in what He does to what I can understand. Aren't you? I mean, if, what if God was limited in what He did to just what I could understand? And there are lots of things that God does that we go, I don't understand. Uh, we, we were at uh, Jim Hardiman's funeral yesterday. And a, a tough, tough time. Some of you knew Jim. Many of you maybe did not. He was an elder here. And just reflecting on, on talking about resurrection and, and talking about the rapture and the gathering together with Jesus in the air and realizing, I don't understand it. I don't get how God does that. But I thank God that he's not limited to just what I can comprehend or understand. Amen? Do, do you, are you with me in that? Well, we've been working th- our way through Matthew 24... Matthew 25, what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's his second longest sermon. And it has to do with his second coming. Now, how many of you have ever seen a sign for what is called a full gospel church? You ever seen a sign that says, such and such, full gospel church? I'm not, I I suppose different people mean different things by that. But what I want to explain to you before we get back into our study and conclude the... um, the Olivet Discourse, is that the full gospel includes Jesus' virgin birth. He was born of a virgin. It includes his sinless life, 
It includes his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his ascension. And the full gospel doesn't stop there. Guess what else is included in the gospel? He's coming again. That's the full gospel. And it's that the last part of the gospel, his second coming, that Christ is coming again, that oftentimes in, in the church today gets left out. And it is such a vital part of the gospel. And I'm so glad that we're doing these passages together because I initially had some confusion about end times and Jesus' second coming. But the more we've studied together through these passages, the clearer and the simpler it's become for me. And I hope it's become that way for you too. And here's how I'm going to summarize it. As we've looked through this, this passage in Matthew 24, 25, it started out in chapter 24 with the disciples asking Jesus the question. When they were asking and showing the temple, they said, hey, when are these things going to happen? When are these things going to be destroyed? And, and what are going to be the signs of your coming? And, and, and the end of the age. And, and so he begins to answer those questions. And the majority of his answer really revolves not around the signs of his coming, but the fact that it's going to be delayed. And that they're going to have to be ready or to be in a constant state of readiness. And so here's the cool thing for me, because we can theologically try to hammer this out. We can get out our pile of books and our concordances and our Greek dictionaries and our theology stuff. And we, well, is it pre-tribulation rapture? Is it post-tribulation? What's the rapture anyway? I don't understand it. It doesn't matter. Because if I am ready for Christ to come back at any time, it doesn't really matter when he comes back, does it? Because whenever he comes back, I'm ready. So we are called, because of this delay, to be in a constant state of readiness. And Jesus used the example of a guy who owns a house, just like many of us, that knew a robber was going to break in and steal stuff. And if that guy knew what time, if you knew your house was going to be broken into, and you knew it was going to be uh, 1 o'clock in the morning tonight, you'd be ready, wouldn't you? You'd be waiting. You know, or you'd lock the doors, you'd batten down the hatches, you'd have the phone with 911 ready to be dialed, whatever it, you know, it meant uh, to be ready for you for that. But what if I said your house is going to be robbed sometime in the near future, but I just don't know when. I can guarantee it's going to be robbed. I know that they're plotting to rob your house, but I don't know when. But I know it's going to happen. How would that, would you then be in a constant state of vigilance? I mean, would you be like always looking around the corners and in the closets and looking at when you go to bed, you'd make sure all the doors were locked every night, wouldn't you? And that's what it means to live in a constant state of readiness. And the problem we have faced and we face is that Jesus has not come back since two, for 2,000 years. So his coming has been delayed. And this is the problem with that, folks. This is the issue Jesus is dealing with, what he doesn't want to happen. The result of the delay is we get lazy, we get slack, we cool off spiritually, and we procrastinate doing the things we know we should be doing. Isn't that true? I mean, what if years went by and your house never got robbed? You'd go to bed and you go, well, you know, I think Steve was wrong. Our house, you know... It's been a couple of years and we've never got robbed. So let's not, let's, 
I forgot to lock the doors, but I'm in bed already. I'm not going to bother. You see how you can easily slack off in your vigilance, in your diligence. And that's what these parables have been meaning to show us. We cannot slack off regarding our, our Christian lives and doing the things we've been called to do. So I have this definition. What does it mean to be ready? This is what it means. This is a working definition. You, we may, you could change it a little bit, but this is how I wrote it out. Being ready for Christ to come means maintaining a lifestyle which demonstrates His character in us by using His gifts to us to bless the people around us until He comes to reward us. It's a working definition. Let me say it one more time. It's maintaining, that's an important word, maintaining a lifestyle which demonstrates His character in us by using His gifts to us to bless the people around us until He comes to reward us. I think that's what it means to be ready. Paul wrote to Titus, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Because there are a lot of people I know, just being in church doesn't mean you're ready. A lot of folks that I know, really, really not walking with the Lord right now. You know, have at one time been baptized, have at some time, you know, uh, read their Bible, done devotional, but you know, things have changed and times have changed and involved in other things and really no time for God. And I'll say, if He came back today, that person I'm thinking of, those people I know of, I would say, you're not ready. You're not ready. Get back on the stick. Remember what you believe. Recall what you've professed and act on it. And so we come to the passage today and we ask ourselves, well, why is it so important? I mean, can't we just get right when he comes back? And the answer to that is when he comes back, it's too late. So you have to be ready all the time. You, have to, you can write this down if you'd like to take notes. You have to be ready already. Does that make sense? That's simple, right? You have to be ready already. You see, judgment comes suddenly and unexpectedly. And those that are ready will be unaware, taken by surprise. If you've ever been in school, how many of you have been in school? Say amen. We've been to school, Pastor. Good. How many of you know the fear of a pop quiz? You come into the classroom and the teacher has that smirk on their face and everybody sits down and everybody's blah, 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 talking and chatting and then the teacher goes, okay, pop quiz. And fear rushes through the classroom like, oh no, I haven't been studying, I'm not prepared. But the, 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 the brainiacs in the classroom, the, the goody two-shoes people, they were the, I'm, I'm ready, I've been, I read my homework every night, I'm always ready. Well, fine and dandy to you, you know. But that's the point. It's like a pop quiz. If you're not ready beforehand, it takes you by surprise and you're unprepared. And so this is why it's important that I want, that I want you guys to consider this kind of the summary. That's a long summary. Because today we actually get to the point where described for us by Jesus is the final judgment before the millennium. Before the, the kingdom age on earth, so to speak. Now this is not the final, final judgment. The white throne judgment. Where 
death and Hades give up their dead and they're cast into the lake of fire with Satan and the demons and all that stuff. This is not that judgment. But this is the final judgment when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom uh, just before that time to see who will get to go into the kingdom and who won't. And I think the things we learn apply to us today, absolutely. So we're in Matthew 25. We'll start there at verse 31. And here it is. We've been talking about the delay, the delay, the delay. Well, here is the coming. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. This is the second coming. He comes to sit on His throne of glory. The first time, the first coming, was not real glorious, was it? Matter of fact, it was quite humiliating. He was born in a humble setting, in a manger, to a humble family. He lived a humble life. He suffered on a humiliating cross, a shameful death. And was crowned with a crown of thorns and mocked. That's his first coming. The second coming, he comes with power and great glory to be the, finally sit on his throne over all the earth. Now you've marked Daniel 7, right? You've got that marked. If you just want to go there, because we use this term son of man. You know, what, what does that mean, son of man? Jesus is making a very specific reference about himself to this passage in Daniel that all of the Jews know about. Look at Daniel 7.13. Daniel having this vision that he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Okay, back to Matthew 25. You see the parallel. I hope I don't have to explain that. I think you see that this talking about the same thing Jesus is referring back. His kingdom, everlasting kingdom, kingdoms of the earth. What happened to the pharaohs? What happened to the Babylonian empire? What happened, what's going to happen to wonderful uh, American times. What's going to happen to the Middle Eastern empires? They disappear. They fail. They fade away. They come and they go. The Roman Empire, where's that? But the kingdom of God is an eternal one. It's forever. So, he says, and when he comes, all the nations will be gathered before him and then they will live happily ever after. Is that what it says? So he's going to gather all the nations, literally ethnos or ethnic people. The whole world. No one's going to say, you know what, Jesus, we don't feel like coming. We don't want to, partic- we don't want to participate. They will be gathered. All together. For what? Why? Why is Jesus gathering all the nations together at this time when he comes back? Well, he's going to separate them, verse 32 says, one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So this isn't really a parable, it's a simile, it's an illustration. So just like if you were a shepherd and you had all these sheep and all these goats and they were all grazing together out in the field, you know, different spots and different places, you'd gather them all together. 
And then they, you know, sheep have a little bit thicker coat than the goats. They can't sleep in the same places. If he was gathering together to milk them, you would separate them for that or for breeding. Whatever the shepherd was separating for, the idea is that he, he would bring them together so he could separate goats on one side, sheep on the other. And, and that's what Jesus is saying is in the same way as a shepherd kind of separates his flock, Jesus will divide all the nations of the earth. Now, is he going to go like, how's he going to divide? That's the big question. You know, well, how, what's the, the standard he uses? To, is, it, is it, you know, one ethnic group here? Are there 17 divisions? Are there, how many divisions are there? There are, how many divisions? Two divisions. They're either a sheep or you're a goat. Sheep or goat. Well, which one do I want to be? Well, we'll find out. And we'll also see, and I'll elaborate on, how he determines the separation. How does the separation occur? Because how we think the separation occurs is a whole lot different from how it really occurs. Because we just separate denominationally, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But I want to remind you something. We, we say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? One nation gathered together under God, indivisible. But when Jesus comes again, indivisible means not able to be separated. But the United States also will be divided, sheep and goats. Because among the nation, there are those that are the righteous and the wicked. And so there is a time when we will be one nation and then we will be divided. And every nation will be divided and grouped this way. So let's get to the, the bulk of this. He will, he will set the sheep on his right hand. That's the hand of, of blessing, the hand of, of strength. And I'll speak to them. Then the king, not the shepherd, the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Isn't that what you want to hear? Inheritance. Oh, how many of you, maybe some of you have been working for a long time to save up. You've been putting money in savings. You've been, you got some land or whatever it is. And someday you're going to pass it on to your kids. You have an inheritance. And someday you're going to say, come, children, you know, inherit the blessing. Inherit my estate. Live on a trust fund or whatever. I'm not sure that's always a good thing, but it is what it is. And he's going to say to the ones on his right, the sheep, come, you blessed of my father. Now, who inherits? Do, you know, let me ask you this. Those of you that have big inheritances, I would like you to include my children in your inheritance. Would you do that, please? Just, you call me up at the office and you say, hey, we've got a pretty big inheritance. And, you, you know, so I'm calling you to let you know. And I'll give you my kids' names and then you can include them in your family's inheritance. Would you do that for me? We say, oh, pastor, are my inheritance is for my children. Right. So these ones on the right hand that are inherit this kingdom, notice how long it's been being prepared. From the foundation of the earth, this, this is not a surprise. He's been preparing this. I go to prepare a place for you, he says. From the foundation of the world, he was just waiting for you to come and inherit that. You've got John chapter 1 marked, right? Let's turn there. I'm going to get there myself. John chapter 1. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So back to Matthew, who gets to inherit the kingdom? Children. Who are the children? Not everybody is a child of God. But those who have received him and been born again. Look, showing up to church, you you can't, this was the ten virgins, you know, you can't inherit it from your parents. You have to be born again. And those will be the ones that are set on the side, set on the right, inherit the kingdom, you're my children. You bear my image. He's going to set them on the right. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now let's read, this is, now here's where it gets astonishing, okay, because what is, you know, How does he know who his children are? Well, look at verse 35. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So, the division, what's it going to be based on? Well, uh, you know... Okay, I want everybody who voted for Obama over here, everybody for McCain over there. No, that's not going to be it. Okay, all the Baptists over here, all the Catholics over there. No, wrong again. How about, okay, let me get all the people that pray in tongues over here and all the people that have no idea what I'm talking about over there. No, not that either. Oh, how about this one? Anybody that's been sprinkled versus dunked when you were baptized? Not that either. I want all the the Indian, Pentecostal, full gospel people here. And it's not like that, is it? it, That's not what Jesus said. That's sometimes the way we do it, isn't it? We sometimes think, you know, these are the things that are going to matter. And Jesus is boiling it down. It's a matter of bearing the character of Christ. Are you really born again? And this is what he says, if you are, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will have these things in your life that are being mentioned here, this proof of a new birth, because the love of Christ compels you. When you see someone in need, you can't turn away. It's not possible because the love of Christ dwells in you. This is fascinating. Because it's not about, you know, those who have the religious routine down. Those who know their theology. This is where, the, as they say, the rubber meets the road, isn't it? The ones who have this maintained lifestyle of seeing people in need. Whether it's sick or hungry or in prison. And showing them mercy. Now, the problem with the church, folks, here's an issue we face. Is we show mercy with an agenda don't we? Sometimes we say, well, we'll help you out because if you're going to get saved. That's that's our motivation. And our motivation, we love to see people get saved. But we show mercy because it's Christ's character. Whether or not they get saved is between them and God. We don't do things, you see, if, if we're only doing things because we want them to be saved, because we have an agenda. People pick up on that, don't they? They know we're up to something. They see it in us. It doesn't seem genuine. Well, we'll help you out if you do this or if you do that. That's called conditional love. What the world needs to see is a church that bears the image of Christ 
to it. And we say, we want to be kind to the wicked. We want to be kind to the unthankful because that's what God is like. And we do it and we leave the results to Him. We share our faith. We, we believe, so we talk about it. This is fascinating. This is, this is radical. John and 1 John, I had you mark it, but let's not turn there. Let me read it to you. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. John says, look, if you see someone in need and and you shut up your heart from them, how how can the love of God stay in you, can can abide in you when you do that? The closer I get to Christ, the more my life looks like this. It's, look, I long to see a church. This is not, you can't sit back in your chair and write your check and put it in the offering box and say, my church does that. I know our church has a strong benevolence program, and we do. We do a lot. We give away thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to people in our community that need their rent paid or electric bill paid. The economy stinks. People are out of work, and they need help. And we've, as a church, your contributions have gone to help people in need. We've never turned someone away because we've said, well, we just don't have the money. Never. Not once. We've sometimes turned people away for other reasons. and uh, uh, We have to use discernment in those things. But our policy has always been mercy triumphs over judgment. The first time someone comes, we always show mercy. We give away Food Lion gifts, gift cards, you know, like crazy. But this is personal. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be separating between sheep and goats. And you can't say, well, I have a sh- I'm part of a sheep church. Isn't that good enough? Can't, can't that count? You know, I'm with them. And they were doing it, so therefore I'm, I'm going to be... No, you've got to have your own oil. You can't ask for some, someone else's oil. So the question, you know, to the youth in here, to the parents in here, is this you? Are you a sheep? Are you moved by people's need? Have you seen people hungry and reached to help them? Have you seen people thirsty and given them a drink? When's the last time you opened up your house to a stranger? Now don't say, I got some people from church I know and they're really strange. That's not, I'm not talking about inviting people from church over. When I lived in Richmond, I wasn't a Christian. There was a a bum, a homeless guy who lived in the... the, um, dumpster behind my apartment there and the guy had bullet wounds in his stomach and he had a hard life and I don't know where he is today but he's got my sweater and my jacket and and because I gave them to him and and I used to get him pickles and popcorn at the cafeteria that's what he wanted I don't think he was pregnant but you know that pickles and popcorn I don't know don't ask me but I wasn't a Christian at the time And so I'm not saying only Christians do benevolent things. But a Christian must do these type of merciful things. A Christian will do because 
you have been born again and Christ's nature is in you. And how can you have Christ's nature in you and not care for people in need when Christ was so caring about people in need? And it's my worry in the church because we have turned church into a personal experience. And church is about me going and me worshiping and me lifting my hands and me going to Bible study and me feeling good and me feeling uplifted until I get my next fix the next week when I go and get uplifted again. And never having it mean something in my life and in the world. And never having it... What moves you, Christian? What moves you? We've got a group that have been going to this soup kitchen. It is awesome. We had an opportunity to have a group from the church. We invited a guy whose birthday it was. Homeless guy. Come and spend the night at our house. You know, had a birthday party. This is not something you do normally. (laughs) This is the love of Christ. And I didn't do it, you know, 10 years ago. This is just as Christ is moving in my heart as I read these passages and I say, this is where God wants me. And my heart says, yes, that's what I want to be. I ask you the same thing. Is this what moves you? Are you touched by the gospel? Are you touched by Christ in you? Or are you just letting the church do it and figuring that that's good enough? Well, it gets more interesting. I could, I, I'm so passionate about this because this kind of stuff blows the world away. Because remember, Jesus said, what's going to happen in the world? The love of many will grow cold. And it's in the midst of a cold world that the Christians are shining by saying, hey, we're going to help. We're going to do something for people in need. Hey, it's just someone you work with, a neighbor, someone down the street. You know, nobody has to know. It's just between you and God and them. Well, this is the fascinating thing. He's, this is how he says he's going to divide them. And the people, the sheep are confused. The, the righteous, verse 37, will answer him saying, uh, Lord, you know, when did we see you and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? I mean, Lord, we've never seen you. Um, you know, you, you must be confused about this because we've not seen you. you know, we've just been, this is like, you know, normal people. We've been just people hurting. We see, you know, homeless folks or whatever else the case may be. That's who we've been helping, not you. And the king will answer them and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That is an awesome truth that I would never comprehend had God not told it to us. Are you telling me the king identifies with the least of these? He is so, he's so concerned that he so identifies with the marginalized that he says, when you do it to them, you know, what, what do you give God? God has everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand. What do you give the God who has everything? He says, I don't want you to give me anything. I want you to show your love for me by loving the least of these, by loving the hurting and loving the brokenhearted because that's who I love. And when you do that, It blesses me. It's as if you were doing it to me. Wow. That changes the way we see people, doesn't it? It's so easy to write people off, isn't it? It's their fault they're in that condition. And maybe it is. But you know what? It doesn't matter. 
It's not ours to judge. And, and this, is, this is just mind-boggling. This is just absolutely incredible as we read this thing. Surely I say to you, when you do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. And, and there, no doubt the righteous are going, that was you? I mean, that guy smelled, he was dirty, he hadn't showered, he was drunk, and you tell me that was you, the king? Yeah, that was me. It was as if it was me that you did it to. Oh boy, that changes the way I see people. And notice this doesn't take a theology degree, does it? You don't have to have been to seminary to, to feed someone who's hungry. To say, hey, can I get you a sandwich? You know, to say, hey, can I buy you a slice of pizza? You don't have to have a theology degree for that. Now, so we've dealt with the sheep on the right, but now we've got this division and we've got to go to the other side. So verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, the first group he said, come. This group he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is interesting because remember, go back to the first group. He said, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Now here he says, depart. Ooh, that was loud. Are are you guys hearing me okay? it, It sounds really echoey up here, so as long as you're hearing. Okay. He says, depart from me, you cursed to this everlasting fire, he doesn't say prepared for you. Because some people think God predestined some to heaven and some to hell. You know, from the foundation of the earth, I was preparing hell for you. And ah, 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 ah. Ooh, that sounds cool up here. Uh, You know, now it's time to finally smoke you like I've been waiting for my chance. No, 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 a thousand times no. Here's what I believe. Because look who it says hell was prepared for. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't think God had planned, and of course he knows everything, so please hang with me here, for anybody to go there. God has made a way that no one needs to go. Because don't say, well, if God loves people, why does he send them to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't. He has preferred. That person that, that is sent to hell had for them an inheritance that was never claimed. Prepared for them from the foundation of the earth. The only problem is they never claimed it. They never were born again. They never surrendered to him. They never were born of the family. You can't join the church. You have to be born into it. You can't inherit it from your parents. You can't sign up at, at the desk. You must must be born again. It's so vital. It's so important. Without being born again, Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom. And so I'm just pleading with those in here that have grown up religious and have, you know, kind of played the hypocrite and gone through the motions. And now you're reading this and you go, oh no, I don't know if I'm ready. And today you can know that you're ready by surrendering your life to God, letting, being born again by the Spirit and letting God transform your life, the proof of which is this character change that takes place. We're not saved by feeding the poor, are we? We know that. We're saved by grace through faith. But we're also not saved by saying we're Christians, are we? And the only sure proof that God has transformed your life 
is the way that you live. And so works are important to demonstrate what God has done in your life. So he says, depart from me. And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You didn't take me in. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And they're going, wait a second, king. If we knew it was you, we'd have done it. Right? I mean, that's, oh, man, we, we didn't know. It's not fair. We should have known. But the idea is God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Doesn't, it's, not, it's not partial. No partiality in there. He wants us to do it to the least of these. You didn't do these things. And they'll answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he'll answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Oh, when God's people do and are ready and prepared for his second coming. Just the purity that that breeds in the church. You know, my heart breaks for pastors that never teach their congregations about the second coming of Christ. And the more we talk about it, the more vital it is for our purity and our walk and our faithfulness. Isn't it? This is what we've been learning. Whether you're a steward over a certain number of talents and you don't bury them, or whether you're uh, you know, needing to have lamp oil in your lamps and waiting, this is, all this has been leading to this thing. And verse 46 says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so this is the choice set before us. This is the, the division is not, you know, Baptist and Catholic and Episcopal and we got a gazillion denominational differences and not one of them will matter when Jesus comes again. Will they? You're not going to say, but Jesus, I, I, I was a Baptist or I was a, you know, I was a holiness church person. What's going to matter is faith working through love. That's what's going to matter. And have you ever put your kids in timeout, those parents? Have you ever put your kids in timeout? You know, what is timeout but a depart from me for a, for a season? You know, you, you, you set yourself apart from this. is what he says. You're gonna, these are going to be departing and they're going to go away into everlasting punishment. That's what we use timeout as a punishment. Now imagine everlasting fire, depart from me. God is love. God is light. God is truth. Imagine being in a place for all eternity where there is no love, the absence of any love, the absence of any light, the absence of any truth, completely alone, in darkness, unloved, and regretting it the whole time. You know how those kids are when they get put in time out, man. They just want to, they want to rejoin with mom and dad. Oh, I'm so sorry. If you got a repentant child, I'm so sorry. Don't do that again. You know, whatever it is that they might. Okay, some kids aren't like that. (laughs) So, you know, we close up the the Olivet Discourse. and, And I hope, has it been beneficial for you to hear these things? Has it touched your heart today? I hope that we get to just look at our lives and say, am I ready? Am I ready? And, and, you know, uh, it wasn't just last year, I think it was last year, we had a a youth, an 18-year-old girl from our community who who died unexpectedly. Was she ready? You know, my kids, my son is starting to drive. And I tell them, you're now, you know, you're licensed to, to operate a weapon. They're dangerous. 
you got to be ready because life is a vapor. And that's, that's not for us adults. That's for all the, the youth in here, the teens in here, uh, the children in here, to be ready because Christ could come at any moment. And oh, how much better to hear, man, here's your inheritance. Thank you, Jesus. Rest and love and light and truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Just, Father, as we finish up today, uh, just... Lord, we would never understand you had you not revealed yourself to us in the way that you have. Uh, We know that we have never seen you, Lord, uh, but we are called to love our brother, just to uh, pour out that character you've given us, the resources we have, the time to bless others and to maintain that until you come again. Lord, I pray for this church that we'd be so filled with the Spirit that your love would compel us to do simple works with tremendous love. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to stand and just worship the Lord with our whole heart as we leave.